This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we'll hear about one group of federal employees who earn a third less than their colleagues at the same GS level and about half of what their state and local government counterparts earn. There's a legislative effort to fix all of that. But first, from financial advisor Abe Grungold, why you should give careful thought about retiring, even if the job does seem like a grind. Abe, the instinct to retire needs to be accompanied with a lot of thought, doesn't it? Yes. If you're thinking of retiring at the end of this year, there are a standard list of questions that I always suggest to my clients. And these 10 questions are, are you eligible to retire? Can you afford to retire? Are you allowed to keep your health insurance plan in retirement? Are you going to keep your federal long-term plan in retirement? When are you going to be eligible for Social Security? When should you elect Social Security? How much life insurance are you going to need in retirement? What should you do about Medicare? Should you transfer your TSP to an IRA? And how do you handle your TSP with respect to withdrawals and inflations? So these are the 10 topical questions that retirees or potential retirees need to think about before they start filling out their paperwork. Now, it seems like the first consideration of the 10, your eligibility, would be the simplest. Well, Tom, it's only simple for those people who have put in a significant amount of time in the government. You are eligible to retire if you reach your minimum retirement age plus 10 years of federal service. You must have that to obtain a retirement. You can have a deferred retirement, but when you select deferred retirement and you don't have your MRA, you can lose a lot of your available benefits. And with respect to your keeping your health insurance under the federal employee health benefits plans and your long-term care insurance that you might have had through the federal plans, what's a good source of information for determining what you can keep and what you can go forward with? Well, that's a good question. With respect to health insurance, a lot of people carry their health insurance through their spouse. So before you retire, you need to ask your spouse, what are their insurance availability in retirement, the cost of it, and how far away are you going to be to Medicare? So it's really a dollar and cents issue. So you need to research that out on the OPM website and on the medicare.gov website. Now, with respect to long-term care insurance, the best thing to do about long-term care is to hang on to it if you have a policy, because long-term care is getting exceedingly expensive as we age. My mother was in a nursing home, and she had to pay $150,000 per year in a nursing home. So if you have a long-term care policy, hang on to it if you can afford it. A lot of people can't afford one. And that's, again, a dollar and cents issue. 
And the question of Social Security and when to elect it for FERS employees and, you know, those that came later or that might have come to the government, you know, mid-career and didn't have an entire federal career, they're all eligible for Social Security. Although I know a few SERS people still haven't quite retired yet. But for those people that can get Social Security after government work, that when to elect always elicits a lot of debate when people talk about it. Some people say, take it now. You don't know how long you're going to live. Why leave it on the table? Others say, well, I presume I'm going to live long enough such that the monthly payment is much bigger if I wait longer. How do you know the right answer there? Well, that is a very complicated question. Even for myself, it was a complicated issue, Tom, because when I retired I had some health issues, and I decided to submit my retirement application at the age of 64. Now, my wife stopped me, and she said, Abe, why don't you take it at full retirement and let me take it early? And that way, I hate to say, if something happens to me, my wife would get the higher of the two. So that was a strategy that we as a married couple discussed, and I thought it was an excellent idea. And here my wife pointed something out to me and I withdrew my social security application. So you really have to look at your budget. Do you need social security now to pay your bills? Are you healthy? And if you're healthy, maybe you can hold off on social security. And the other big issue is, do you plan on still working after you retire? So if you're working, you really don't want to take Social Security. Uh, You want to hold off on that. Or if you're working, say, part-time for half of what you earned earlier, then you may want to. Yes. If you're working part-time, there is a dollar amount, I believe it's $21,560, that you can earn without losing any Social Security benefits. And yes, working part-time is a good strategy in retirement. It keeps you busy, keeps you active. It provides a source of income and you don't have to lose any social security. I believe it's $21,560. And if you go above that, then social security diminishes, but does it go back up again once you fully retire? Well, if you fully retire, then no, your social security would stay the same. You just get the colas for each additional year that you age. But no, if you're getting Social Security at age 62 and you're working part-time, you can earn up to 21560 There's no reduction. But certainly after the age of 67, you can earn a million dollars a year and you're not going to lose any of your Social Security. Well, that's a relief because I had that personal question myself. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a retired federal manager and now does financial, I guess you could say life coaching, because life coaching is probably right next door to financial coaching. And the withdrawal strategy, I mean, that's what really I think worries a lot of people because that's your principle. And so you want to make sure, you know, that the principle is growing even if you take the return from it, you know, the nest egg. That's everyone's big question. Yes. Well, this is a tough question because as a TSP participant, I am still in the TSP even though I am retired. And you need to invest your TSP somewhat aggressively to handle the monthly withdrawal amounts that you're making as well as inflation. So you don't have to be fully aggressive, 
you need to be somewhat aggressive in your retirement years. And you can have a sizable monthly withdrawal. And if you're somewhat aggressive, that growth will sustain itself. Your TSP should never diminish as you are in retirement years. And for me, even though I have a long-term care plan, my long-term care plan will be exhausted after two years. My war chest for nursing home is my TSP. So that's where I'm going to pay for those nursing home years is my TSP. Sure, or else uh, you can hope to have enough dementia that you don't know you're in a nursing home. (laughs) That's maybe some small solace. Unfortunately, yes. As long as you know that you have the ability to pay for your nursing home care, and it's also a good idea when you get on in years is to establish an estate plan so someone is paying those bills in the event you are not able to make your own financial decision. So let's get back to that original question you mentioned, and that is the opportunity cost of retirement. That seems like a big part of the equation, and probably your lifestyle and what you plan to spend and spend it on, too. That's the other side of this besides all the income questions. Well, the opportunity cost used to be something that I used to hear from federal employees who were much older than I was at that time, and they were retiring, and they had all these grand plans what they were going to do in retirement. And let's say you are earning $100,000 a year as a federal employee, okay? And you're going to get a $40,000 a year pension. Now, say you just want to have a mindless job in retirement. You want to work in a flower store or you want to work at Home Depot. You want to work part-time or whatever. And you're earning $40,000 a year. Well, now you're earning $80,000 a year. You could be working full-time in retirement, working in a flower store at Home Depot, and you're working full-time. You're losing $20,000 a year by doing that. Now, a lot of people work remotely. They want to teach English to people remotely. Okay, fine. You're earning that $40,000 a year teaching English. You are also getting a $40,000 pension, you're losing $20,000 a year, and you no longer have that government computer. You have to go out and buy a computer now. You have to buy a headset. So there's a expense to incur in order to do that part-time job. And both jobs that I mentioned, you're not getting the TSP matching of 5%, and that was a loss of another $5,000. So you really have to understand what is it you're going to do in retirement and how much are you going to earn? And maybe it's just a good idea to work an extra year or two. And you have to evaluate that opportunity cost. And before we get complaints from the florists, it might be that you really like flowers because flowers can be a very creative type of endeavor. (laughs) So please, no complaints from florists. We love you. So the idea of working another year that predisposes the idea that you like your work because a lot of people just burn out maybe. Yes, that's true. I I had a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine. He was a federal manager high up and he had to retire to take care of his spouse, but he still wanted to keep busy. So he worked at Home Depot in the landscaping department and he did it just, you know, for the physical aspect of it and he enjoyed it. 
And I said, you know, that's a wonderful idea. You stay busy, you're working, and you enjoy what you're doing. Yes, people get burned out. And, you know, government jobs are very tough, especially these frontline jobs that people just don't want to do anymore. They can't tolerate it. So it is difficult. I actually had a great government job. I worked remotely, but I was a lucky person. Financial advisor and retired federal manager, Abe Grungold. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll find out about the plight of federal firefighters who keep federal facilities and military installations from burning down. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. A bill with bipartisan backing would give substantial raises to federal firefighters. Their union says they make close to minimum wage for this dangerous work. For more on the Federal Firefighter Pay Equity Act, I spoke with the Government Affairs Representative of the International Association of Firefighters, Greg Russell. Let's uh, define who the firefighters are. There are approximately 9,500 federal firefighters that answer 911 calls on federal installations all across the United States. They're located in 46 states and they are an all hazards firefighting force. So they respond to fire emergencies, vehicle accidents, hazardous material spill, and emergency medical service calls. Their situation with their pay is this. They earn approximately two-thirds of the hourly rate paid to a regular GS government, a general schedule government employee. So their average hourly rate across the United States is $16.26 an hour. In Hawaii, where you have an incredibly high cost of living, the average hourly rate is $14.55. Compare that to Mississippi, generally a smaller economy, if you will. In Mississippi, it's $15.85 an hour is the average hourly rate for these firefighters. So we need to address their hourly pay, which will help with recruitment and retention. We're currently seeing between 15 and 20% vacancies across the federal government. And again, this is just structural firefighters. This does not include the wildland. Our firefighters here do not primarily respond to wildland fires. That's a complete separate uh, federal occupation. Interesting. Okay. And so at that pay level then, how does that compare to, say, if you're in Honolulu or if you're in a city, that municipal fire department levels of pay? The pay is approximately a third to half of the neighboring municipality. And oftentimes, our firefighters, federal firefighters, are responding hand-in-hand with the municipality. You know, in our D.C. metro area where I'm located, we have the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, the National Institutes of Health, and the Department of Navy, all located within Montgomery County, Maryland. As part of a mutual aid agreement, 
those agencies respond to fires and incidents in Montgomery County. So they're standing side by side with Montgomery County firefighters saving the lives and property of the Maryland citizen. This is not just uh, in Maryland. This happens all over. In Fed Fire San Diego, they respond to incidents with the municipalities there. We have to do this firefighting evolution by joining our forces together. There is no way that one entity alone can handle all their emergencies. So we have this integrated uh, mutual aid system, which takes our firefighters from the federal facility out into the municipal sector, and then also brings the municipal sector into the Fed sector. All right. Tell us more about the Federal Firefighter Pay Equity Act. What would that specifically do, and does it go far enough in your view? So the Federal Firefighter Pay Equity Act is an incremental step at moving the ball forward. So that bill would level the playing field for the hourly wage when you compare grades. A firefighter is typically a GS-5 to a GS-7. Again, they're making two-thirds of what the typical GS-5, GS-7 makes, so they will see their pay elevated to the same hourly rate. Another flaw, if you will, in the current benefit scheme is federal firefighters do not receive full compensation or full consideration for their high three when their retirement benefits are calculated. As uh, such, we intend to increase their high three figure to the amount they earn for their regularly reoccurring 72-hour work week. A federal firefighter typically works 3,744 hours a year. However, not the total of that 3,744 hours counts towards their retirement. Each pay period, they're reduced approximately 19 hours when it comes to the retirement calculation. Well, over 26 pay periods, 19 hours adds up to a substantial amount, which lowers their high three calculation about five to $7,000, depending on their grade. We're speaking with Greg Russell. He's government affairs representative of the International Association of Firefighters. And just give us a sense of how they live when they're on duty, because uh, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, and there are volunteers and there are full-time, you know, sworn firefighters, and they have nice firehouses. And you know, it's almost like you see on these TV shows. When a fire comes, they're ready. But meanwhile, life is not bad in the firehouse. What is it like for the feds? So the federal fire sector is very much similar to the municipal sector. One thing that I will share that is different than what you see on TV is most of the federal facilities are well dated. For example, we still have a fire station fully occupied and in service 24 hours a day here in the District of Columbia that was built in the 1800s. That building is at the Washington Navy Yard. There are other departments out there that I am aware of that are living in cramped quarters because the buildings are so old that they haven't kept up with the modern apparatus. 
you know, imagine the size of a vehicle, a fire engine from the 1950s, and compare that to a fire engine you see today. The current fire engine's probably two feet wider and six to eight feet longer, and maybe a foot or two taller. That takes up valuable real estate, if you will, and what sacrifices is the living quarters. Federal firefighters do not enjoy single occupant bunk rooms, most of them have uh, three, four, even 10, 12 firefighters sleeping in a single room. And that is if they can sleep and they are working 24 hours a day. So they have kitchen facilities and the kitchens are often dated, very small cramped. Many fire stations do not have uh, training facilities like you find in modern fire stations. So as far as fire station facilities go, across the board, they could use modernization. Right. So it sounds like then that's outside of this bill, but there needs to be kind of a capital improvement program. Correct. We're talking about all agencies. So the largest employer of federal firefighters is the Department of Defense, followed by Veterans Affairs. But again, you have federal firefighters at um, Commerce health and human services, at interior, in at energy, Department of Homeland Security with Coast Guard facilities. So they're across the board when it comes to agencies. But DOD is by far the largest employer, and they're the ones suffering the highest attrition at this time. You know, we have the Norfolk Navy base, the largest naval mm-hmm. base in the free world, currently has between 50 and 60 vacant firefighter positions. Folks do not want to go to work for the Navy who are pay- paying wages substantially below the municipal counterparts. And our federal firefighters, again, like I said, work a 72-hour work week as opposed to a typical municipal employee who works between 52 and 56 hours each week. So we work more hours for less money in the federal sector. And that's a third part of our bill. The third part of our bill would direct the Office of Personnel Management to determine the maximum number of hours a federal firefighter can be regularly scheduled, provided that maximum is no more than 60 hours. So the Office of Personal Management could determine that 56 is appropriate and set it at that. But at no case would it be more than 60 hours. Right. So two and a half days. And we should point out that 3,744 hours a year at $16 an hour, say, that only comes out to just below $60,000. So it's not like they're getting giant pay here for these long hours. And That's correct. And how Um, how does these firefighters pay compared to the federal wildfire firefighters who are having a temporary pay boost through the so, one of the bills, and that's about to expire at the end of the fiscal year. Correct. These firefighters did not receive that approximately $20,000 a year pay boost. These firefighters uh, still are making just above minimum wage in many states. In comparison, their gross salaries are about the same when you consider all the overtime that goes into wildland firefighting. Greg Russell, Government Affairs Representative of the International Association of Firefighters. 
That's it for this week's FedLife. Find all of our coverage of developments affecting your life as a federal employee at federalnewsnetwork.com. I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.